So, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am very excited to have as my guest, Sebastian Siegel, who is a screenwriter, director, author, meditation teacher, and integralist who is here to share about his latest project, which I think many of us are going to be pretty psyched about. Uh, Sebastian has written and directed the feature film Grace and Grit, which is based on Ken Wilber's book of the same name, and it's the story of his marriage to Treya Killen Wilbur and her struggle with cancer and the adventure and journey that they went on together. And it's a very popular book, a very beautiful book, and a very significant book for many of us in the integral community because it just um, exudes integral consciousness and is a beautiful transmission of that. So I am happy to have you with me here today, Sebastian Siegel. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. I remember when you came out to the Integral Institute probably a dozen years ago now, Sebastian, and met with us and met with Ken. When did you get drawn into the Integral scene? That was a derivative of the first question that you ever asked me, right? That I think I walked in the room and you said, so how did it happen to you? <laughs> right? yeah. And it's such an interesting thing. Uh, when you run into someone yeah, who reads Ken's work, there's always a story about how they discovered it, um, that it found them, yeah, so to speak. Um, for me, there was a friend uh, who, uh, whose husband had recently died, and uh, he was a very intense guy, very smart guy, and... Um, the woman seemed to think that we had some similarities and, and um, she was getting rid of a lot of his things, uh, you know, giving away a lot of his things. And she said, you know, I, some of his jackets are about the same size as you are. Um, would you like these, these jackets? I said, no. I, I said, but you know what would be great is uh, what are you doing with all the books in his library? And she said, uh, oh, you know, I'm just going to donate them all. I'm going to give them all away. I said, well, if you've got two or three of his favorite books, something, and I love a couple of those books. So one of them was A Brief History of Everything. All right now, prior to that, a couple other people had told me, oh, you got to read Ken Wilber, you know, the things that you like, uh, you got to read Ken, right? And then, um, so I had had A Brief History of Everything on my table. And I was reading a few books. I was really into Martin Luther King at the time, Ramana Maharshi. Of course, I'd been into Alan Watts and many, many, for many years and read everything that he'd written. And um, then Joseph Campbell, who I met as a kid and, you know, I'd read all his stuff. And then, you know, different philosophers, you know, Schopenhauer, I was really into and Nietzsche and etc. And uh, then I was at an art show one night and I ran into uh, an acquaintance and I'm not, uh, I'm outgoing social, but I tend to be a little more reclusive. And I was a very a voracious reader at that time. And um, I was outside with a friend and she was a yoga teacher and she was talking about how she just reconciled a relationship with her father. And, um, and she said, wow, you guys sound so similar the way you talk about the universe and eternity and transcendence. And I said, well, what does he read? And she said, well, he loves Alan Watts. And I said, ah, it's amazing. 
I said, you know, he was such a big impact on me. And then, and she said, you know, but right before he died, we became closer and he was reading Ken Wilber. And she was just like, he was saying, Ken, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever read. This was the same thing that the man who had passed away, who I'd had a couple conversations with, an acquaintance with, uh, and the woman had said that she said, oh, when he was, before he passed away, he was reading Ken Wilber and he, she would do an impersonation. Oh, this is the best shit I've ever read. It's brilliant. So I said, at that point, I said, okay, I'm going to go back home and, and this is coming to me through all these ways. And I got to trust that. And then I cracked into it. And literally when I cracked into it, um, I realized that it was something that while I had found many authors who I had loved over the years, you know, and sort of poetic authors from Watts to Rumi to Khalil Gibran, et cetera, on a lot of different levels, uh, both, you know, scholastic, scholarly, and otherwise, um, that uh, this writing was not just brilliant, but was poetic and was speaking to me in a way that I had never uh, experienced before. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave myself literally... I don't know how long it was, at least a couple months to read uh, a brief history of everything first. And I gave myself that amount of time because I didn't want to just consume it. I wanted to really own it on a molecular level. Uh, and my original copy, it's in tatters, as I'm sure many people's are. And it's scribbled with notes, yeah, from beginning to end and top to bottom. And then I went on to then read everything that Ken's written, basically, in the, last, in the next you know decade. But I would read other people, but I would always come back to him. Yeah. That none of the things excited my mind in a way that I could feel those neurological connections happening in ways that were seductive and spectacular and sumptuous. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here you are then. Uh, you, I, I trust you read Grace and Grit back in the day. You know, it's interesting. I was going with my ex at the time to Hawaii and I used to love to go to the bookstore and just grab a few books and, and take them you know, on vacation or something. And um, I grabbed a couple books and then Grace and Grit was one that I had had, but I hadn't read it because I was interested in all his books on consciousness. And I thought this a, a true story didn't appeal to me as much at the time. And um, then we got to Hawaii and I remember I opened it up and we both started getting teary-eyed. And I said, okay, we're not going to read this on this trip. Then um, subsequently read it and um, it just was, you know, rocked my world. Um, from the levels of what is real commitment and what is real, you know, authentic uh, compassion and what is it to struggle to be human and to be, you know, to love and, and to allow love in and to also trust beyond ourselves and to have this I thou relationship and to see it really grounded in a very real world. You know, how can I hold this sort of transcendental relationship in the other and, and, and soak up this experience in a way that's both eternal and, and imminent. And, it, and so I, you know, I bawled my eyes out and I laughed a little bit as well and I put it down and I didn't want it to end. And I remember when I put it down, I was working on a film in Atlanta and it also changed my meditation game. Um, because of uh, Treya's writing about Tung Len, that, you know, Tung Len then became a, an integral part of my uh, meditation jam. And um, I, I was just, I thought, yeah. this is an unbelievable story because it's written by two people. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's really this unbelievable character study, you know, and yeah. the courage uh, by, you know, through which it's woven, you know, through which Ken weaves it. Uh, 
to allow both the beauty and, and, and magnificence of their humanity, but also the tenderness and the fragility and, and the, um, you know, where we falter as humans was so courageous and beautiful. That's it rocked me. And I yeah. thought this, this is an unbelievable story. It's got to be a film. Yeah. Wow. So, and now it is a film. <laughs> and so just give us a snapshot of where it's at. Uh, I was really psyched to see who you cast in it. Mina Suvari as Treya, uh, uh, Stuart Townsend as Ken, uh, and Frances Fisher is one of my favorite actresses. And uh, so uh, where is it? You, you, you've shot it, you're at post-production, what's going on? So I think on the way there, uh, you know, to preface it a little bit, <clears throat> when I first read it, I was blown away by the book and I loved it, yeah. And then subsequently, I had had a discussion with Ken about it. You know, where is this? And, and um, you know, a couple of people had had uh, looked at it prior to me and, and sort of, you know, also, I think, seen that, well, this is a love story, but there's something else here that's really uh, transcend, you know, transcendental. And that, that, that to honor this, it can't just be a love story. It's That's got to be woven in there. So right. a certain particular kind of storytelling. Um, and I think that everyone felt sort of people who read the book are generally blown away by it. Uh, and so when it was sort of the right time, I didn't, I thought well, it would be an amazing movie, but I didn't think that I would participate necessarily in that. I just thought, wow, as an actor, this is an unbelievable role to play for a woman and for a man, um, or as a storyteller, as a writer, etc. So then, um, uh, I think then later when I, uh, acquired it and Ken sort of trusted me with it, I think, uh, to be close enough to be privy to the subtle underpinnings of his work and voice, um, but also to be outside of, uh, you know, to be integral, but to be outside of it in a way to say, okay, it's far enough away and close enough that I think he um, trusted me and, um, and felt comfortable. And I said, you know, basically, you know, my, discussion with him was to say, this is for me bigger than me. Okay, I just want to participate in this. I have no egoic attachment to this. I just want to serve um, as, as part of the uh, orchestration of this. And I think that I can do it in a way that's unique. Um, and um, I, have a, I felt that I had a, a unique sort of proclivity towards uh, describing different elements of the story so then I, I think he felt comfortable and said, okay, so then I took on the rights and, you know, and started to move forward with it. As I moved forward with it, um, there were a lot of, what I realized is a couple of things off the bat. Uh, number one was that this is an epic love story, but it's really a story about eternal love and eternal life, so to speak. Hmm. And um, that, that was what would differentiate it in a lot of ways. Um, Obviously, it's a it because it is about this human being who is one of the greatest thinkers um, in in you know of all time uh, with such a powerful and unique voice that it needs to be handled in a certain way. I knew right off the bat any film that is um, it's not a biopic, but any film that is biopic by nature, there are going to be people people who respond to it great, and other people who say, "Oh no, 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 you missed the mark." Right. And that's the nature of the, of the difference between film and book. Right. Um, so as I started to, um, 
develop it, I was looking to partner with different people with uh, different skill sets than me, uh, who I trust and admire and love and respect. Um, and it was just going so slow as movies go, right? And I didn't want to write it at first. You know, I thought I'm going to get a brilliant writer to write it. And I had a couple people on my hit list, uh, screenwriters. And then, you know, it was just like, ah, you know, he's traveling in whoa, whoa, or she's over here, blah, 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 whatever. And so then I started to write stories out, basically, Jeff. <laughs> and then as I would share those scenes with people and say, hey, this is the basic premise of the book. This is the summary. This is what happens in some of the scenes to give you a flavor of it. The response was always like, wow, um, you need to write this. Like, this is, this is coming out of you. So then I said, okay, while I'm waiting for someone else, I'm going to, you know, get busy, like at least writing that way, I'll be able to have an easier dialogue uh, and discussion with whoever that individual, those individuals are. So then I did it. And then the response was that, you know, people would put down the script and they'd be all teary eyed <laughs> and they'd say, Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. This is a great epic story. Um, so in that process, basically the book's about 400 pages. I broke it up into four 100 page segments. I used several color highlighters. Uh, one would be what stays in, what goes out, what stays in, but stays in metaphorically or analogously. And uh, what stays in, but doesn't happen chronologically, obviously, because when you, if you're making a documentary, you want to just, you know, follow as is. But if you're making a theatrical film, how do you take 400 pages and put it into a two hour movie? Um, it requires a lot of uh, changing. So I was trying, I orchestrated that, then adapted the screenplay. And the, the first version was 160 pages or something like some crazy thing like that. You know, and then knocked off 20 and another 20. And it took some time and then got feedback from peers, etc. So once I got to the script stage, then I started to uh, uh, feel out different people to partner with. And uh, during that time, um, I had some opportunities to make the film that were contingent on an actress. Uh, maybe that wasn't right for the film, you know, or I had other opportunities to make the film that would have served my work or my career as a producer, but I didn't feel were right uh, to serve the film. An example of that would be a company that wanted to do it just as an acclaimed piece, um, but to take all the creative rights. Uh, and I felt like to honor Ken, to honor that story, that I needed to remain participating in the execution of the story to keep a lot of these things, uh, the integral aspects intact. Um, so uh, one example specifically to ground that is a company said, listen, we want to fund this in-house. We'll fund this for $10 million. We're going to get this, these two movie stars and we're going to go shoot this movie, but we're going to change the script radically. And I thought, well, all right, that's fine for me as a producer, but my interest isn't hierarchically first here. My interest is way down the, the ladder for me. My personal interest is to serve this thing. And doing this big $10, $20 million movie with movie stars, I might as well just write a love story this weekend and we can cast, you know, whoever in it, right? But that's not what this story is. This story certainly, as a love story, has a broad popular audience, but it's a more of a niche story. This is an edgy story. This is a real film. You can taste the tears. You can smell the sweat. You know, you can feel the salt and the honey and the love and the tenderness, the disappointment, the courage, the hope, the despair, and the transcendent love in there. And I knew that that was important. I knew that also means as somebody who both paints paintings and sells paintings, that in order to do that, we have to constrain the budget a little bit, but that will make a better film ultimately. 
Um, so we need to make something that's smaller, um, but that's true. That's true earth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So then did you find a new production company or how'd that go then? I was exploring with different partners, uh, people who I liked very much, uh, admired very much, you know, uh, uh, some uh, exceptional filmmakers on every level. Um, but I thought maybe it's just not right. Yeah. And, um, you know, if I'm going to die for this, I want it to be at least a little right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so uh, then I finally met um, uh, a partner who believed in this, who believed in the story, who loved the script, who really believed in me, who also said, listen, you are the guy to tell this story um, and you need to direct this. And I was, you know, early on saying, listen, I, you know, write, produce, direct, act. I'm comfortable in a number of different positions. It uh, depends how we piece this puzzle together. I may not be the best person if, uh, you know, early on I'm a fan of Darren Aronofsky and I like him very much. And uh, Treya's uh, story, there are some similarities between that and all the stories of, that Darren tells, you know, from The Wrestler uh, to Black Swan uh, to The Fountain, which uh, it was a wonderful movie for me. There are all these stories about identity and then uh, death with transcendence and recognition. Yep. And, you know, The Wrestler and, and Black Swan are very similar stories, you know, just with different containers and different plots. And Grayson Grid certainly has that. So I wanted him, for instance, to be uh, the, the director. Anyways, nevertheless, and my partner said, uh, listen, let's do this. And um, so he brought half the equity. I brought half the equity. Um, and then we started to piece it all together, you know, looking at uh, the other team who would come on, both in production, uh, but also in, uh, you know, the actors and, and, and all those elements from there. So how did you get the actors? They seem really good and they're, you know, high-end actors. Minu Suvari? Yeah, she's brilliant. Wow. I've never seen a performance like it. Really? I've never seen a performance like it. Really? It nothing to do with the film, I would say that. I, both both her and Stuart are spectacular. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so how do you get them? I mean, do they yeah. love the book? Had they read the book? So we put out a, originally, uh, we put out a breakdown, um, you know, which is uh, basically describing the key characters a little bit about them, a little bit about the story, who's involved, you know, who the, who the, the, the orchestrators of the film are. And then we got a response. And, and some of the people were actors, like brilliant actors, um, a couple male actors who I'm huge fans of. Um, but they had aged out or they weren't quite right for it or, you know, maybe would be intimidated by the material in some way. Because for both Mina and Stu, for the two lead characters, Ken and Treya, for these human beings, you know, for people to portray these human beings, they're not just real stories. It's also on the very basic level of work. It's a hundred and something pages of dialogue for each individual to remember and to own it and to really live from that space. It's also a huge uh, emotional investment for an actor. They have to fall in love. They have to be in deep despair. They have to make love. They have to cry. They have to fight. They have to fall apart. They have to come together. If you haven't read the book, I won't spoil the end. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, death and rebirth. Yeah. yeah. Here's some stills from the movie that you sent. That top one is um, uh, Stuart underwater. Uh, that's Ken's dream, dream sequence. Um, Nina and Francis uh, at uh, Treya's wedding. So Francis is portraying her mother. 
Um, and and then there's Mina's beautiful shot of Mina during beautiful, the yeah. intense discussion with Ken and then the two of them early on when they're meeting and falling in love. And, you know, all these other characters, whether it's, uh, you know, Trey's mother or friends, some of these people are depicting actual individuals. Others are not. Yes, it's actually a big cast. I mean, you you put together, a, a you know, this is a lot of moving parts. You know, tell us about just getting the ball rolling. Okay, so um, it, it happens, a lot of it happens, um, uh, you know, a lot of the things kind of come together at the same time. Um, I'll tell you first how Mina and Stu uh, got involved. And then just to uh, put a button on the uh, peripheral characters, it's really a story about these two individuals. And so in going from 400 pages to a two-hour movie, you say, all right, these characters are all peripheral. It has to be that way. And, and otherwise, we're going to make like Cleopatra. We're going to make this for hours. <laughs> and no one's going to sell it, distribute it. No one's going to watch it. You know what I mean? So we need to make this really, you know, what, what's the core? So even like, uh, you know, Treya's mother, Frances Fisher's amazing. She's beautiful and depicts, you know, who the mother would be beautifully. But it's not about Treya's real mother. Treya has a sister. But it's not about Trey Israel's sister, but uh, Rebecca Graff plays that character full of life and full of love. You know, these characters all, and same thing with, you know, Roger Walsh or, uh, you know, Linda Conger, um, who I had uh, dinner with in Santa Barbara, you know, is in the film, but it's not about these characters, okay? But Trey and Ken, it's very much about them and who they are. So um, my partner who made the movie Crazy Heart, uh, which Jeff Bridges won the Academy Award for. Um, and I think that he uh, got behind that film and backed that film because Scott Cooper, that was his first film and his first feature directing. And people said, all right, you know, people had faith in him because they said, you're the guy to tell the story. He really knew the story well. And so in the same way, my partner, Eric, got behind me and said, you're the guy to tell the story. You need to paint this picture. So then when we started talking about cast, we, you know, had talked to a few different names. Um, and he had worked with Mina on a film subsequently, uh, you know, or previously, and then was uh, doing a film with her then uh, about Nicole Simpson. And I had met with that director about that previous film, just to play a role as an actor. <clears throat> and then... He said, do you want to, uh, the director called me at that film and said, you know, we'd love you to play this role of Nicole's psychologist. Uh, and it's opposite Mina and it's just a lot of dialogue, just a couple scenes. So was you like, as an, you as an actor. Correct. Yep. You'd like to come in and do that. And I said, you know, I'd be thrilled. Um, and Mina, we were not discussing Mina as Treya at that point. And, um, I, but I wanted to see moreover, uh, I trust my friend enormously, uh, Eric and Eric Brenner. And I, you know, his work is amazing and he's done very small films and giant films, you know, with Anthony Hopkins and Al Pacino and etc. Um, so he also knows as a filmmaker, the mistakes not to make, you know, and then the things also that serve a film. And he was also, we were simpatico in terms of the delivery of this film uh, to be a, on a smaller budget, you know, to mitigate risk going in to say, listen, people are going to love this movie. It's going to live on for many years. So let's really make a beautiful story. You know, this isn't about bells and whistles. Um, it, you know, it's a tender, rough, edgy film. So um, I wanted to see how they ran a movie. You know, I wanted, I was excited to play the role as an actor, but moreover, I wanted to see how do they run a set? Because if I'm going to be making this movie to, with these guys, I want to, you know, see how they're dotting the I's and crossing the T's because the risk in movies is about execution. 
Um, you can have wonderful everything, but if the execution's no good, you don't have a good, well-oiled machine. So I got this set, and these guys were running a beautiful set, um, uh. really, really running well. And then uh, I went in right away. Uh, I went to Mina and said, hey, this is your movie. You're carrying this movie. It's about Nicole Simpson. And um, I, um, you know, is there anything I can do for you? You have an enormous amount of dialogue. Would you like to run our scene, et cetera? And she said, yeah, I'd love that, Sebastian. That sounds great. So while we were in makeup, we ran the scene, and she was just right there. You know, I could tell this woman was extremely prepared. And, and um, right off the bat, I felt sort of her emotional resonance in it. And so then we went and shot the scene, and it's like, you know, long chunks of dialogue, both her and me. And we just sat there and locked it and ran it, and she was really present and really there. And then we started talking, and and as we were talking, she had just recently been married, and um, or was getting married at the time, and um, was talking about how she gone uh, was vegan, and you know, was, we were talking about sort of different things. And I started to think, I started to think, oh, could this be Trea? <laughs> you know, I started to think that. And then afterwards, Eric and I met, and I said, you know, what do you think about Nina? You know, um, my first question is just on a professional level, when you're running a film that's on a constrained budget or constrained schedule, you can't have uh, an actor who's an alcoholic or doesn't know their lines or shows up late. It's just, you can't. Back in the days of James Dean and Marilyn Monroe, you, you could do that, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, it's not, a, it's, you know, the, the, the terrain of filmmaking has changed too much, you know? So the actors really have to be there. Uh, be ready and really be bringing it and especially for this role the actor has to have that emotional depth and sophistication uh, and availability so um he said look she's incredible she's really well prepared i mean this she does the work and um so then her manager read the script and he loved it and he said uh, i mean it's got to play this and she read it and and obviously talked with the manager and said, I've got to play this. Like, I love this. This speaks to me. Wow. You know, I never from the start wanted to do a lookalike contest. It wasn't important to me, uh, the exteriors of Ken and Treya. What was important to me were the interior structures. The man had to feel like Ken. And we'll come to that in a minute. Um, you know, but the main thing was Treya first, right? Because it's her story. It's told through her voice and through his eyes. And then at the end, it melds really into this sort of unified voice. Hmm. He then becomes the carrier of her voice, um, uh, as he did in this world. Yeah. Um, you know. So um, Mina read it. Uh, her manager was very enthusiastic. And you know, just as a footnote, too, in terms of managers and reps and filmmaking, this is not a kind of project that generally reps want their actor doing because they look at reps agents will look at sometimes yes but oftentimes a rep will look at uh, an actor as a business and say okay if i put this actor on a tv show or in a marvel film you know that's a good business this is a risk because if the director isn't really on this could come off really ridiculous yep, of course yeah this is also, you know, this puts my actor out of, you know, unavailable for two months. And I could put this actor on a, you know, a few episodes of some show or in the lead of some film, other, you know, sort of major film that I'm going to make a lot more money from. But the actors who are in touch with their clients who really want um, substantial material, this would be, and it has to be the right time in that person's life. So for me, no, I think it was the right moment in her life. So then she read it, then she and I met. 
And we sat down, Jeff, for a few hours and we discussed the script. We discussed the story. Um, and she cried, I don't know, four times in the meeting or something like this. And then, you know, I got me teary eyed and I felt right away very confident with her. I felt she's the woman. She's, she's it. She's, she's trapped. And, um, this woman is, um, very smart yet accessible, geeky and attractive, feminine and yet grounded yet to herself, you know, with this conflict of having so much up here and yet having this depth. And so I felt like Mina was demonstrating those things without knowing that that was really important to me and, and to the story. So that was it. So she signed on. We were excited. So then it was like, how are we going to get this guy? Like, who's who's going to, how can you play Ken? So I had prepared for that. And certainly my partners felt like you definitely um, are, you know, absolutely are the guy for this. What do you want to do? And I said, well, let's put out a breakdown. I want to make sure I serve this thing to the best possible degree. If that's me, I'm okay with it. Um, But maybe there's someone who is really, the right guy for this, you know, maybe it's James McAvoy, maybe it's Ed Norton, maybe it's, maybe, I don't know, you know, DiCaprio, I don't know, you know what I mean? You know, there's, in other words, I'm open and I'm flexible, let's evaluate, you know, what the potentials are here, Yeah. So we did that. A lot of uh, incredible names came in, but people maybe who weren't quite right, we, um, it's a lot, it's a lot to ask of an actor, it's, it's huge, huge, it's a lot of pressure. Um, at that time, um, we were, I don't know, seven weeks out or something like that, eight weeks out, somewhere in that range. Um, I was still preparing physically. Um, I'm the writer. I'm also the director. And I'm also one of three producers on the film. Um, I like to do an enormous amount of prep work. Uh, we'll talk about that later, the prep as a director. As I was doing that, there were days where I was driving 200 miles just to scout locations. And then I realized early on, because of this is a, a very indie film, that my job as a producer trumps my job as a director. I need to do my best as a director, but ultimately I need the film has to get made and has to keep moving forward. So the more prep I could do as a director, the more um, f- flexibility that would allow me to mitigate risk going in uh, when I would get pulled away to produce. Then I realized at that moment that, okay, I'm not going to be able to give this what I need to give this uh, if I play this role as an actor because uh, producer, director, if I had a support system like that Bradley had uh, when he did um, A Star is Born, the time and the sort of budget and, and that kind of thing, then maybe. Um, uh, which I thought was a beautiful film, by the way. He's exceptional, you know, on a lot of levels. Right. Um, I'm a fan. Um, but I felt right away that this was, I w- that I could do that as an actor, but that I, that I needed more importantly to direct this. Uh, to paint this picture. So nevertheless, I was preparing just in case because we had a sort of come to Jesus moment. We had a date to shoot. And if we don't have an actor, somebody's got to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I weigh around 200 pounds, 205. Um, I'm very lean and muscular and um, I've been sort of a natural high intensity athlete my whole life. And um, so I said, okay, if I uh, basically, I've got to drop about 20 pounds going through this the head and the face mostly and uh, you know in the upper physique for sure so i dropped um uh, almost 20 pounds in 50 days um now because it was mostly muscle it was easier um 
So uh, I went down to like 183 or something like that. And I'm six one. Um, and I was just in case, you know, and uh, I was just swimming and, you know, eating kale. That, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how does one do that? I, I guess eating kale. You know, having vegetarian protein shakes and stuff. And it was fun. I enjoyed the relationship with food. I cut all weights. I was just, you know, predominantly swimming and lunging and sprinting and, and yoga, etc. So then at that moment, we had had the discussion with one actor. And then it came to, you know, Stuart Townsend's manager, uh, you know, was responsive. And Stuart really liked the script. It seemed to be the right place uh, in his moment, uh, the right moment in his life. He just, he's got two beautiful young boys. He was just going through a separation. Uh, with his wife, and um, I think he felt it just spoke to him. So he was very into it, wanted to have a discussion with me, Was probably had some questions about uh, how are we going to shoot some of these dream sequences on a constrained budget, how are we going to shoot underwater stuff. He and I talked, and um, we hit it off immediately. We had a long discussion on the phone for an hour or so, and uh, I felt very comfortable with him, and he felt very comfortable with me. Um, and we talked all about it and, um, he said that, you know, he was honored, thrilled, excited, that it spoke to him on a lot of levels that he was, um, not intimidated, but, um, really wanted to be sure that he could do this justice, that it was such a big thing. How do you go and play Ken Wilber? He said, you know, I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with Ken Wilber. Now he's like, I'm doing this crash course. Now this is just a few weeks out. Right. And he's amazing. This man. Um, you know, I gave him, uh, the, uh, DVD, the, you know, from the uh, documentary that you guys shot there. Um, I sent him a bunch of videos, <laughs> he read the book. So he was just eating, sleeping, breathing Ken Wilber from morning to night. Yeah. I mean, and, he, and, and, and getting it and getting it. Oh yeah. And he's already a long time meditator. You know, he sits in full lotus position and is, uh, you know, spends a lot of time on the beautiful property that he has out in the desert alone with his two boys in a tent. And um, mm. it was largely influenced, uh, as I was, by Chong Yam Trungpa and, and Alan Watts and, you know, a number of other people. Like wow. This. So he was, uh, and that was a bonus. Right? Yeah. So then it ended up that, like, you know, we were really becoming close friends and and also had this strong relationship as director actor um all these surprises started coming out okay and so one of them was on day one he shaved his head right and when he shaved his head we all stood back and he looks like identical to ken like the shape of the mouth and the brown eyes and the ears and the head and he's got this beautiful head right and it was just like it was um synchronistic and eerie and spectacular and i felt like there was a force that was driving this on a higher level yet again um so i am deeply grateful to both of these actors wow. uh, come on and to um trust me really with their careers you know to trust me right because you know, they're my partners in this so you have these two great actors. You're feeling really good about it. You're a few weeks away. I assume you got the other actors cast and it's time to prepare for shooting. And you're so, the director. All right. So we're a couple of weeks out. Um, so actually Francis came on earlier. Um, she had been on already for a couple of years. She's um, a very, very close friend of mine. Uh, she was in my, uh, both my documentary films 
And she read the script early on and has been just such a wonderful friend, you know, and appear, you know, such an extraordinary, you know, kind of iconic actress. I mean, her work, her body of work is spectacular. And as a human being also, she's a longtime meditator. She's vegan. She's really right there. And when she read the book, you know, she was like, oh, Sebastian, I just cried so hard. And then same thing when she read the script, she was like texting him well the night. She was like, I can't believe I don't want it to end. You know, I'm saving three pages for tomorrow kind of oh, thing. Oh, my goodness. Several years ago. So she's been wonderful um, because we've sat together and had so many discussions about it. Um, and Marianne Williamson is a, a very good friend of mine uh, as well. And her and Francis are, are kind of besties. And I actually met Francis through Marianne. Uh, and Marianne and I had had many discussions about this as a film and what it would look like. Um, and so Francis basically said, look, I'll, I, I'm with you. You know, I believe in this. I believe in you, Sebastian. And, um, you know, tell me, you know, how can I be supportive? So, was, um, so she was on. And then Julia Ormond, who is a, a dear friend, also a friend and fan of Ken's work and book and they've been friends for many years. So I said, I'd love you to play a role. You know, what would you, you know, would you play uh, Chris Habib, the new age healer, that Ken and Treya go see, you know, would you be open to that? You know, it's a cameo role, but it's this sort of really memorable role in this key scene um, on a lot of levels. And so she said, yeah, I'm open to it, Sebastian. She gave me some notes on the script um, and we had many discussions and saw many movies together as well and discussed it. And then when it kind of came time around, uh, when we were in production, she was, uh, shooting a series in Europe and I said, Julia, we're going into production. You know, are you available? Are you still open to this? Would you do this? And she said, you know, Sebastian, I'd love to be there, but I'm shooting the show in London uh, and I'm not available. So I was like, ah, yeah, I was like, Sah. you know, I was so excited to be able to work with her. Um, and so then uh, I had, uh, basically, I text uh, Mariel Hemingway. And, um, you know, she's extraordinary. I said, this is Mariel, this shoots really soon. I think we were actually in production at that point. We were shooting. It was like a week away or something. And I sent Mariel Hemingway a text. And she said, hey, send me the scenes. And I sent her the scenes. And she said, listen, this is beautiful. I love it. And then I'd love to be part of it. I'd love to participate. And I said, ah, you're the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's a lot for a director to, uh, for an actor to trust, uh, you know, a director with material like this. Yeah, right. She's amazing. Marielle's just spectacular. Yeah. So we got Marielle, we got Francis uh, Fisher, and um, uh, Mina Suvari, and Stuart Townsend, and then um, uh, Rebecca Graff. Uh, we cast, uh, who's just the camera loves her, and she did this great job, sort of representing abundance and life and enthusiasm, all these things to sort of juxtapose Treya's story with um, impermanence. And um, then uh, Nick Stahl uh, from The Terminator, uh, Terminator 4, I think, he's incredible. I had this beautiful cameo with uh, Ken and Bob Dottie. So with Stuart Townsend and the character of Bob Dottie, who Ken runs into in Germany in the, in the Yanker Clinic. Um, and they just have one scene in the hallway around the beer machine for people who've read the book and they're talking about the, the beer and whatnot. And I wanted to keep that in because it's this sort of light kind of um, moment between these two men that in the midst of all of this high dose, short term chemo, that these two guys and Ken, who you know plays everything close to home, he's got to be strong for her. He doesn't show his emotions, 
you know, and he's, you know, here, you know, so much for so many people. And the scene is this, that he has this moment by this beer machine with another guy where they can just laugh and have a beer together. This light moment, you know, which is so important, these mundane moments that uh, support the sacredness and the profundity of life. Mm-hmm. You know, these passing moments. And so Nick Stahl said, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. Um, and he came in and he's so good and cool and just right for it. And it's a very charming scene and it stays in. Uh, and then Lydia Hurst, um, uh, she plays uh, a character that's fictional, um, who is, is Trey's client, right? So Trey's a therapist, a psychologist, and is talks to uh, Amy, Lydia's character, who um, is um, essentially acting as an avatar for a lot of the things that Treya hopes for and fears. So she's vocalizing the shadow inside of Treya. Mm-hmm. She's talking about how, you know, her doubt in her relationship with her guy mm-hmm. and, and talking about the sexual aspects of that relationship, the fears, the, you know, the, 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 the despair, the deceit. Uh, Amy's character, that is uh, Lydia, uh, the character Amy, Lydia's character, that is. Um, Lydia came in and was great and loved being, uh, loved wanting to collaborate and, uh, with me, all the actors, uh, loving the process and the relationship between director and actor. Um, so with all of these uh, actors, um, you know, I like to, uh, everything I've shot in the last, you know, kind of decade, um, I like to really allow people to do what they want to do. Uh, and that means the set decorator, the makeup person, the wardrobe, the stylist, uh, the production designer, the DP, the actors. And then I want to then have a relationship with them because I want to see what's their strong suit. Because while I know all the categories and all the departments, they're a specialist in that one particular thing. So I want them to shine and bring that. And then we want to orchestrate and play together. Yeah. And so I was able to have that with every department. Uh, and, and with every actor. Um, Frances, you know, uh, it was amazing, you know, working with her because she's so seasoned and she saw so many movies that she would do things that I would see on camera and on set that then only in the editing room, you know, or later, sometimes I would see it on set, but I would realize, well, that's a jewel. You know, there'd be a moment like where she'd kiss Mina's head uh, at the wedding and there's like a little bit of lipstick, you know, on Mina's head and then Frances would go there and she'd, rub it off of her head and that stayed in the film. And it's those little details that make the film feel real. Mm-hmm. You know, that if the, once you, I think when people see this film, they'll feel like ah, I'm with these, these actors become these people. Well, it's just so interesting to hear the, how these things come to, together because, you know, we all love film. So here you are, then you're coming up to, you know, the, the first day or what, and, and, and you've got a team and you're, you've got your locations, and so give us the you know countdown here. So we, we start doing our locations, and simultaneously, I'm going through uh, uh, meetings. Basically, basically, I'm doing 4 a.m. to midnight, give or take an hour or so there every day for uh, pre-production, and especially during production. We're shooting every day except for Sunday, and then uh, uh, we had these fires here. We lost a day in a location during that. Um, and there were a lot of things that happened along the way uh, in a movie that can derail a movie. An actor can go to the hospital. We had that happen. Things can light on fire. There is a giant fire. 
um, for, uh, we lose locations. All these things happen on every so movie. When, every when were you shooting this? So we shot in um, November. And then we did a pickup day, I think, a couple months from in February or something like that. I'm not sure. Yep. Apologies. Yep. My best. So you uh, shot in a period of a couple weeks? We shot in a month. In a month. Okay. And did you use a sound, sound stage or locations both? So there are dream sequences in the film. Um, and I try to weave the story really about um, eternal love and eternal life. So that these two individuals, these two beings meet in another life and then they're brought together in this world and there's this resonance that they feel like we know each other we're already intact something is speaking through us there is this i thou relationship right from the start act one love at first touch right for those who have read the book yeah and then they're they're both in their mid-30s they're not you know youngsters and so this is, you know, mature, uh, considered kind of love. Yeah, absolutely. But yet just uh, at, at record speed. Yeah, at record speed. Yeah. And I think that's also what differentiates it from other love stories. Um, during the prep, I watched two love stories a night for um, a month and a half. So all my friends who were men were like, ah, what are you doing tonight? I said, well, at six o'clock, we're going to watch the notebook and then we're going to have dinner at nine. And then at 10, we're going to watch Titanic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> tomorrow. I said, well, at eight o'clock, we're going to watch ghost and then 11 o'clock, we're going to watch the fountain. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so at, at six o'clock, we're going to watch love story. And then at 10 PM, we're going to watch. <laughs> so then all my friends who are women were like, this is fantastic. You yes. know? But I had a couple of nights where I had just one guy there with me. And by the end of the night, you know, we'd be arm in arm, like crying, <laughs> you know, yeah. And I did that to get the pacing and find out what I really liked about certain love stories, what worked for me and, and what I could find in terms of what would resound with uh, Grace and Grit. Certainly, um, Treya's uh, character, as depicted in the film, uh, her arc is from doing to being, as, is, as she speaks of and writes of her journals. And her arc uh, as a character is also from student to teacher. Yeah. And, yeah. and just to make sure people are sort of following along relative to the book, the book is, I think, well over half her um, her journal entries. Yeah. And Ken's commentary and his storytelling. But it's a beautiful mixture of both of their voices. Yeah. So how do you do that? You know, how do you pull that off? So, and then his, uh, you know, Ken's arc is from head to heart and from teacher to student so that they meet, you know, and that he's here and he, and she's in awe of him, you know, and he's just like, wow, what is this? Boom. And uh, there's this resonance that lives on sort of. And so how are we going to depict this in a film? So, her dreams are going essentially up this hill, looking for something. Is it to beat this illness? Is it to fall in love? Is it for a purpose in life? What is it? Is it to write a book, to express a thing? What is it? And his are underwater. And in the book, it's in these caves. Um, and I'll come to why it got changed, why I changed it to underwater. Um, and underwater in this sort of very 
Freudian sense uh, and the sort of symbol of the self or in the sort of Shakespearean sense, like when Hamlet goes out to the ocean and finds himself and then has to come back, you know, confront his uncle. Um, you know, Ken's characters underwater and both this abundant originator of life, but also I can't breathe underwater. You know, this juxtaposition of these two worlds, you know, sort of spelling out the polarity of these two things, also the dreamscape and the eternal space. And then he comes eventually to the surface to see the stars. Her journey is over a hill where there's no water. And in the end, reaching the rain in which she's unified with him. Uh, so metaphorically, you know, they're, they meet in this life, there's love at first touch, and then they feel like, okay, we were meant to be together, we're bound together. And just at that moment, they're torn apart, right? Life tears them apart. But at the very moment they're torn apart, they're also woven together forever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she, she gets her cancer diagnosis, what, a week or 10 days after their wedding. Yeah, yeah. And it's on from there for five years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we cover that period basically, you know, five, a little over five years. And um, when they're torn apart at that same moment, they're woven together. And that's really depicted metaphorically in this sort of dreams that the two of them are experiencing. Um, so to prepare the film visually, I wanted to um, obviously incorporate um, this sort of gross, subtle, causal or waking, uh, dreaming, deep sleep states. I don't want it to do it heavy handed though. I want it to be really light. Just so like if you go see a movie, five friends go see a movie Avatar and they leave and everyone says, I know what it means. And they all have a different story. Well, it's about eternal life or it's about the earth or it's about our unity and our interconnectivity or it's about, uh, you know, it's about, the, you know, coming into this life and many, many lives. It's about string theory, whatever. And everybody's right. They're all patients, <laughs> you know, depending on what, you know, where they're at, you know, in the same way that Ken talks about all the different colors of, of uh, religions you know, and different lines of intelligence and what's speaking to somebody. So as a filmmaker, uh, the specificity of film uh, that is required, that is not required in a book. Um, I also, I think in order to allow the space for an audience to make those, um, to build in those responses has to be hold on loosely enough. So I use the dream things. Some people, it, it, it'll just be a dream. For other people, they'll be like, aha. That's really where they're woven together. Yeah, and that's just right. You know, I don't mm -hmm. want to be forceful as a director. I want to be gentle. Um, so to do that, uh, also, I wanted to tell a story in, in three acts uh, in the way to say, you know, the first act is really uh, love at first touch. And the second act is uh, let go to hold on, you know, sort of zen, if you will. And then the third act is transcend and include. Wow. And so, you know, in that I said, okay, for locations, this takes place in Mir Beach in San Francisco. This takes place in Colorado. And this takes place in Lake Tahoe. And this takes place in Germany. So I want to have these three very clear acts. It's also for people who read the book in Mill Valley, but for the purposes of a film, I made three locations. So they're Mir Beach, or they're at her home. And then they're in um, Lake Tahoe. And then they're in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And in between that, they go to Germany. So these are very much loosely correlates with Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and these themes, right? That are, that Did you are, shoot in these locations? 
I want to say yes, because it looks like these locations. The film feels like we're in all those spaces, but, but we didn't. Um, but we did shoot spectacular locations that really embody those. Yeah. Um, and well, got the magic of film, Sebastian. We All is forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. man. Um, so I wanted to um, metaphorically uh, depict these worlds uh, and what was going on in their lives with the details. So I worked with, so back to the prep and going into production, I worked with a costume uh, designer who was just extraordinary. And um, I had worked with her on a previous film and she, you know, we went through a color palette for every character. So Francis sort of is greens and gold and she lives in Texas and, you know, she's very alive and the sister's sort of blue and, and, um, you know, and, and they're kind of conservative and, 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 uh, Treya is purple. Um, and, you know, Ken is these earth tones and, um, then each act also has a slightly different color, both in the lens and the color palette that you'll see on screen. Uh, but also in the characters' uh, clothes and also the location. So Germany is a little more muted, uh, is a little bluish. Uh, they're in three primary hospitals I selected, um, and each hospital has a slightly different color to the floor and to the walls. It'll most audiences will lose that, but you'll feel it subconsciously. You'll feel it. You know, you'll feel it, the difference. So the houses. The first one is very feminine. It's um, full of life and freshness. It's where they fall in love. The second house in uh, Lake Tahoe is where they try to force the relationship to work, um, mistaking the finger for the moon and, you know, you know, trying to choreograph things too assertively. So that house is, has no furniture in it. The entire house that we got is uh, architectural perfect lines. So the, all the desks are built in, the tables are all built in, the seats are either swings or built-ins, the bed is built-in, there's no furniture in the halls, it's perfect streamlines which is representative and low ceilings, which is representative of what's going on in the relationship. They're trying to force everything together. We're going to stay together. We're going to beat this illness. We're going to make it all work. We're going to put it on a piece of paper. We're going to map it out. We're going to do it. And that tears them apart. That's where they split. That's where it comes apart. And then in the third place, they're in Boulder. That's their reconcile. They say, listen, we're giving into something greater than us. We, must be together this is there's no other way we this is it and that house has trees uh in the architecture the woods are all naturals rich oaks and different woods the house just is both masculine and feminine it speaks of this life that's very old and transcendent you know of trees and it's rich with all of the things that they've accumulated throughout so as i'm choreographing the locations and mapping those out and with the costume designer i'm also working with production designer and with um, uh with wardrobe and with set design to say okay ken has a million yellow uh pads and pens <laughs> and books and these are the books that we need and i go through all the books that you know are that he's a fan of and other books you know uh, eastern and, and what you know philosophers and, and, and religions etc and, and science and treya is painting and is into uh, arts and infusing glass and all these things from act one show up a little bit and then by the time you finish act three you've got everything including photos of them that are taken during the film um, including the photo that would become the cover of the book. Um, 
so those are the physical elements from locations to wardrobe to, and then of course comes the camera. And um, my DP, who we've done a couple projects uh, together prior to that, is an exceptional man. Um, uh, I've got a brilliant eye who I trust, and we have a short shorthand with, which is very important uh, in indie film because the hours are very long and um, you have to really be simpatico. He knows exactly what I want. I get his sensibility and uh, we can move very quickly. Also, um, so we went through, we did a few days of just lens testing. So in other words, what's the lens we're going to shoot these this on? Uh, the lenses that we're going to shoot this on. So we shot, for people who are fans of uh, uh, Terrence Malick, um, that's very much my style as a filmmaker. Um, and I use the same a lot of the same lenses that he uses. So for people who have seen Tree of Life or Night of Cups or Thin Red Line, uh, I use these uh, a lot of wide-angle lenses. I also like this because I want to get in really close up into the characters, uh, up into Trey and Ken, to feel like what it feels like to be inside of their heads, inside of their world, to give it a very, to get very close and intimate, and yet uh, to also warp it a little bit. You know, when you get up close, like even if I do here, the edges start to curve a little bit. And we don't see the world like that, but we feel the world like that. And so I thought that was important uh, for this film and for this story. So uh, we selected the lenses. I shot a lot of it on a super wide, on, on the uh, 20 or 14s, and then some, uh, you know, for film buffs, you know, on a 30 and more standards. But most of it was wides. Uh, and then we kind of were discussing the color palette, you know, throughout. Uh, we did a lot of handheld uh, at the beginning and in the middle, a lot of very long shots. I knew that because there are a lot of scenes that take place in a, a hospital, I wanted those scenes not to be conventional for anyone. I wanted those scenes to be a visually sumptuous cinematic experience. Um, uh, you know, just spectacular, right, to look at. Um, and then in the end, I don't do any lock-off shots, not one, except for the very end. I have one jib shot. It's one scene coming straight down from the ceiling with um, Ken and Treya, with Stu and Mina laying there, and it just comes straight down. I don't know if this shot is going to live in the in the final cut. <laughs> right now, it's in there, um, but we'll see. Um, and then I do at the very end after he takes her uh, to bed. Was one lock off shot where we zoom out. So essentially. The timing of the shots is that it moves very quickly at the top. It's edited very radically. Uh, it jumps time forward and backwards a little bit so that you get to feel the, them falling in love. You get to feel the space sort of in there and, and kind of the rapidity, but that they're growing outward hugely, you know, going in this depth in a very short period of time. But these are two very sophisticated, intelligent, emotionally, um, rich human beings that are able to connect very deeply, very quickly. Yep. And how do you do that? You know, by jumping forward, jumping back. Uh, in some places, I'm not using sound. Um, you know, I'm cutting sound out completely uh, to, to make it more visual. And other times, I'm reversing it. Uh, then in Act Two, uh, I do a lot of the most radical shots. Um, I wanted to make Act One very accessible for any viewer. And I want Act Two to be more radical uh, in the way of Mulholland Drive or sort of David Lynch-esque or, or more Malick-esque uh, to really push viewers to limit. Because that way, the people who want just a love story, they've already bought in. They've sat through Act One, so they're not going to walk out now. Right? And 
Whereas the people who really love Ken's work, they'll find the love story at the beginning. They'll sit through act one because they say, all right, I'm curious about this, but act two, they're going to be rewarded for sitting in. That's where we really get, you know, uh, his, a little bit of his sensibilities and work starts to come out. And then the shots also, I do some very radical shots. Um, one is, uh, I don't know how many minutes long it is, but it's a single shot starts with six, eight people in a room in a hospital room. Um, Trey is taking it all very well. It's not great, not the great, not the greatest thing. Um, for those who haven't read it, she's you know having cancer and is going through a, pro, a, a surgery. Ken is there and he hasn't yet shown any emotion in the film. He plays it safe, strong for her. He's also so well known that he you know keeps a facade and he keeps a, a distance because he's such a compassionate and tender human being. Yeah. But he has to show up in the world like this with this with this woman and the people around him um, who come into his life and are curious about him. And um, so he leaves the room. And as he leaves the room, you know, you can see he's got a little concern on his face. And then he walks down the hospital hallway and it's lighter. But immediately we're in a space there that's not as bright as the room full of women and full of life. He passes by uh, a nurse's station. And the nurse says, oh, you know, kind of waves, thank you for the flowers, Mr. Wilbur. It's kind of like, you know. and he has to put on a facade. He has to give a smile when he doesn't want to. And we see that. And then we see him like this, and we can see that he's disturbed. We follow him down the hall. Then he turns down another hall, and it gets darker. And immediately, there's a, I have a guy wheeling his girlfriend in a wheelchair. He notices that. It's metaphorical. He gives down the hallway. It gets a little darker. And then we follow him into... He sees an open room and he steps in and he sits in a chair in this empty dark room with just one ray of light shining in. And um, he leans down and then he gets teary-eyed. He has to leave this space full of life and light to go into a room alone to be with himself, to confront himself, to allow this out. And doesn't feel yet that he can share it or show it. So we start very wide and we end up here in this sort of Sergio Leone kind of shot all the way inside of Ken's eyes. Um, this, of course, uh, is depicted in uh, the way that Ken writes the book and chronicles his journey with Treya. Um, it's one of my favorite shots in the film. Um, Stewart's beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful shot. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. So those, um, there are a lot of, sh there are some shots like that in Act 2. And then in Act 3, most of Act Three, they're in they're in Germany a little bit, and then it just the whole thing slows down. Right, Trey has reached uh, at that point passionate equanimity. Uh, for those who have read the book, that I'm going to do all I can, but without attachment to result, just for the love of it, for the love of life. Right, and she gives her talk, uh, an abridged version of the talk that she gives that many people have seen. And we shot that identical to how Trey really gave it. Of course, it's shorter, but um, it's beautiful. And um, John Denver uh, played that night, and uh, we have that um, as well. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm You're so looking forward to seeing this. So in the final um, act, I wanted to slow the shots down and make it really just about these two beings. And so then we come, we slow everything down because the last, I don't know how many minutes it is, but it's just these two actors. That's it. No one else. Everyone else falls away. 
we leave some uh, relationships unbuttoned. Obviously, her mother and sister care and are calling and etc. But we, for the purposes of film, it has to be about these two people, and, and that's what is going on in their world. You know, when people read the book, obviously they will see that um, it was not just the two of them in the house when Trey passed. But for the purposes of depicting this, it has to be about their connection, and so on screen, it has to be just the two of them. Um, I can't say enough about <clears throat> Mina and Stewart's performance. So there you are, Sebastian. It's you know you're the director. It's time to yell, "Ready, set, go!" or whatever you yell, and um, you know you're watching this happen. How's that? feel are you feeling like you know what you're doing are you hoping for the best or what's going on with you <laughs> thanks so much jeff for that question <laughs> yeah i come in really prepared and um i'm also i think um you know i think so much of what appealed to me about ken's writing early on is that you know my father's a professor of comparative religions and, and uh india was his specialty so growing up india had a big impact on me in those comics as a kid and sort of this sensibility of these how all these uh, 333 million Indian gods are all avatars of one another that we're all have these different faces and so the sense of this Martin Buber I thou relationship uh, became um, sensible and sacred and profound to me early on um, and so I knew that if I gave that to this telling this uh, story and I gave my discipline too in terms of as a craftsman <clears throat> that it would be it would turn out well um so i did a lot of prep on every level with every person uh, even my ad and my dp we uh, acted out i acted out every scene with two of those guys for two 12-hour days two in a row about two weeks uh, 10 days before we shot or a week before we shot so that once we got on set i acted out trey's part ken's part francis's part etc and said we're going to shoot this on this lens and we're going to, uh, you know, this is going to be a single in a hospital. This is going to be a long uh, two shot. This, and then they had great ideas and we collaborated, you know, between the three of us. So that, that way when we get on set, if there's a fire or something happens, we'll be able to, we'll already all be on the, on, on the same page. And, and were you, did uh, you reshoot things? Were there uh, arguments or, did, you know, how did you deal with differences? Yeah, you know, yeah. you've shot a movie before. I see. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've done a project with other people before, human beings or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, no arguments. No, I never raised my voice once. Um, I, uh, I, I, I go about things you know i mean i don't know if, if, if the last 20 years of meditating for me it's given me some little bit of equanimity and i think that, that then i don't know how anyone can make a movie without being a psychologist you know yeah and i, and I think being able to navigate now even you know in post-production and in the producing aspect of it different personalities the thing for me is i don't care if someone's an asshole i don't care if they're condescending to me i don't care i don't care you know i, I don't care i want to serve this project you know i don't get my feelings i'm tender i'm sensitive man very mm -hmm. much emotionally available you know i it's easy for me to have t tears in my eyes um but i don't take it personally i'm okay and i'm I, I i'm honored to work and thrilled to work with people who are good at what they do sometimes that person has a deficit in one line of intelligence sometimes that line of intelligence is interpersonal communications and that may be their wheelchair you know that may be their um uh their thing that limits them in some way and i'm okay with that 
you know i think that that if we can um look past those things and you know uh, be comfortable with with those uh, very rough edges <clears throat> things get done a lot more easily because of the nature of film it's very long hours let's say you have a hundred people you know even on a small film or a thousand people on a movie and you're shooting let's say a month the odds that someone is going to come to set with a wife a husband a lover a child a father a mother who's passed away who's sick who's someone who's been devastated in some way the odds are like 99 percent yeah. but you can't bring that to work so we have to just assume going in that everyone had that that day. Yeah. So I always, you know, like to show up, you know, full appreciation and, and interest in every category um, and negotiating uh, and um, interacting and responding with all the different personalities to make it work. Yeah. Um, that's a strong suit for me, I think, as a director. I think did you it, keep things? Were things pretty much on schedule and did it move pretty much according to plan? Yeah. Yeah, it did. I, my team was uh, unbelievable on every level. Um, just the, the costuming to the set to, you know, literally the um, letters. There's a lot of letters, obviously, since um, uh, this is Treya's uh, journals and she's journaling throughout the movie. And so there's some voice of uh, her reading and Ken as well, a little bit. Um, and there's letters sent back and forth where she's sending letters to her friends, let's say, you know, or, or to one another. And, um, you know, in, in the prop master, he wrote letters. He's ambidextrous. He would write with one hand, Ken's handwriting, with the other hand, Trey's handwriting, one in black and one in blue. That way, when the actors would read a letter, if they were actually going to read a letter, they would open it up and they would read it fresh for the first time with actual different handwriting. That kind of detail. That the audience will never know. Some of the things, uh, Treya's uh, um, entry that went in the transpersonal, uh, uh, the Journal of Psychology, um, we have that original magazine. Um, you know, we got it. You know, Ken opens it up. You barely see it, but Ken opens it up. And, yep. You know, some of his original, uh, you know, early books and the books that influenced him as well are there uh, in, the, in the film. Um, so in, in terms of... Um, uh, troubleshooting things and being on schedule, you know, the nature of it is things fall on and off the wheels. The prep that I did, let's say with, um, uh, Sean and, uh, uh, Gus, my AD and my DP by saying, by already knowing what we're going to do with each shot that, that helped us when we got in. Yep. The nature is, you know, we had an actor go to the hospital. We had a fire, um, you know, so those things definitely, uh, but I also shoot fast. I know what I want. I don't do a lot of takes. I like to work with actors who are really, really prepared. Um, I can shoot 10 pages in a day, um, which by film standards is a lot. Um, so, uh, so you did, we did. So you have it now and there it is. And now you're turning it into a movie, right? That's right. Yeah. So what's that process like? That's a word on the street. Um, the, um, you know, um, I, I wanted to just jump back for a second. The, um, the storytelling, uh, you know, the, the part about, I think, in looking at this and how to tell it as a story and looking at the risks and trying to see what are the risks we're going to run into. I wanted to move through the scenes quickly that weren't, that aren't as crucial 
to the theme of the story. In other words, if, if they're important to the plot, I want to move through them quickly. If they're important to the theme, I want to give them time. So the scene, uh, you know, the scenes at the end where it's Treya and Ken's last days together in this world, uh, I wanted to give the actors a lot of time. You know, so I would prepare the schedule in that way where we would say, All right, we're going to shoot however many pages in this day, and however many scenes and setups. When we get to this, we're only going to shoot this because this is really important. Um, and so, and when I shot, we shot, I wanted also to shoot mostly chronologically um, for a lot of reasons. And then you asked a question earlier about, you know, was it emotional or was I responsive and how was it shooting it? You know, Jeff, there were scenes, there were moments, so many moments in there where I was watching the, the camera, watching the actors and got so, you know, like teary-eyed and chills and, and a lot of people. Um, there was one day in particular where uh, we were shooting stuff in the Boulder house and uh, I'm on listening and we've got a hard lockdown on set. So it's silent and um, we're shooting mostly natural light also for the movie. And I wanted makeup to be very conservative because I wanted to feel all ill. And um, I was watching a scene and um, you know, it was one of the final moments and I just started getting so teary eyed. I'm crying and I'm, smiling and I'm watching and I, I'm having a sort of somatic kind of transcendent experience feeling like I'm so fortunate to, to be able to um, carry this in some sort of way to a broader audience. And, um, and it's beautiful what these actors are doing. And it's beautiful. This story, Trey's story and Ken's work. I'd be dead if, if I hadn't discovered Ken's work. And I feel so honored to be a servant. Um, in the telling of the story. And so there are moments, uh, particularly in this one day where I, was, and then I looked to my right and my makeup department, they're crying. <laughs> and I look over to my left and the prop department, he's watching it and he's crying. And even my producing partner, one of my producing partners, who's not a guy who shows his emotions. Um, I look over and he's watching like this, <laughs> right? He's standing behind me and he's not on, he can't hear the scene. He can only see it on the plate on the monitor. And he's like this. And I look over and there's just tears streaming down his face. Exactly. And that scene, I didn't yell. I, I, I didn't yell ever cut. Um, uh, but I didn't cut. Instead, when we were done with that scene, I let a lot of scenes that were really intimate between the two of them roll out because I wanted to see where Stuart and Nina would go. Because after a few days, they started to develop an incredible rapport. And you'll see their chemistry on screen. And um, the, Stuart's a very playful actor, and he's really good at improv. And Mina really likes to be on the page. She does the work. This woman is so prepared. And so, and they're both, you know, so seasoned. So the dance between them, the masculinity and femininity that came out between them is beautiful. So I didn't say cut. I just walked in the room, you know, and I came in there, and I, and I just, the three of us just held each other. And not, we just, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah but like we're in so the three of us have found each other in this world in service to the story um this tender spectacular sentient human story yeah. the capacity of love to grow and to live on and also to touch something that has a resonance beyond this lifetime yeah Wow. Yeah. Well, that's just the, um, the act of creation is just so intrinsically satisfying and fulfilling and what fun. Yeah. 
So, um, so you're now in editing and piecing it together. And how's that going? Um, we're in post-production and I, I really appreciate the question because I'd like to give a sort of disclaimer to the hardcore Ken fans, um, and to the hardcore fans of the book, right? I'm one of us. I'm part of this sanga, right? Uh, this is, um, means more to me than anything that's personal to me, you know? Um, you know, there will be a director's cut, which will be about two and a half hours. And history will, will favor this cut. For the purposes of people seeing a movie for a distributor, in other words, for a company to say, I'm going to spend X amount to show it to people, which is a lot, it has to be under two hours. And my producing partner is saying, it's got to be. It's got to be. So I respect that. You know, I understand that. So I have a cut that's under two hours um, and it's beautiful and it's, it's accessible and it's, it's all, you know, it has all these things. Um, but there is a, uh, an edit. This will be the director's cut, which will be, which will be about 220 or 225, um, which will embody more of really what's going on and really of Ken's work and Ken's mind and uh, a lot of those things that I think are so important that maybe for a broader audience don't, don't matter so much. Right. Um, but especially for an integral audience, uh, for any, any philosophers and psychologists out there, they're going to want that too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like if someone, uh, SES is a gift, you know, they either, they either call you six months later and they say, wow, or they call you, you know, or you never hear from them again. Right? I was going to say, you never hear from them again. You know? yeah. yeah. This asshole wants me to yes. read this book exactly. written in hieroglyphics, <laughs> you know? I know. I've oh. given it to so many people and it was a black hole. So, An oft-told story in the integral world. Yeah. So, so speaking of which, when can we see this movie? We yeah. in the integral world and everybody else too. Thanks. Um, so we're in post-production right now. We're getting, uh, I'm getting close to uh, a picture lock, which will be a version that's under two hours. Um, and then it will be uh, going to festivals, um, Maybe Trebekah, maybe Tiff. Uh, certainly Sundance uh, is on the target. Um, uh, before, once we lock picture, then we have sort of color, sound, music, etc. Um, and then, um, uh, but prior to that, we'll show it to a few people um, to get essentially the right distributor uh, to support this film, because there are broad, uh, you know, to not go too far down a. a, a, a uh, with a vernacular, uh, you know, specific film, um, you know, there are distributors that will release this to a broad audience or to an audience. Let's say. But there are other distributors who will carry this and package it and support it in a certain way um, to, let's say, run it for uh, a claim, let's say, for the actors, you know, in a certain way that serves the book, that serves Ken's work that serves the film, that serves the story. So ideally I would like to reach those, these individuals um, before I go to any festivals. Um, so are you working on that process right now? Correct. Yeah, okay. I am. I just came from a meeting actually um, with that. And, and um, you know, so that's the idea. Cause I want so to, this would be a theatrical release. This isn't a Netflix or, you know, one of the TV distributors or might it be? It could be, and it's a it's a it's a great question because the the terrain of film is changing so rapidly. Right. Um, so Netflix would be a dream distributor because they will um, some films will 
get lost there. Um, although some films will really be, uh, you know, have a buoyancy behind them. I think because of the fans of Ken and the supporters of Ken, you know, from, uh, you know, John Mackey to the Wachowskis to different musicians and directors and, and, and people with talk shows and et cetera, I think they may be able to draw enough light on it that a broad distributor like that, uh, it may work sort of symbiotically. Um, Netflix would also uh, support a film in this way, as well as a company like Fox Searchlight or A24 or Annapurna. Um, there are a number of distributors who this would be really wonderful for. So individuals who I would love to see the film, ideally uh, women, um, for sure. Um, so I'm meeting uh, and trying to, I would like to show it to a few people before we go to festival, ideally to position it yeah, ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Right in the best possible way to reach this, you know. I want people to know about Ken's work, yeah, and I want them to fall in love. If they don't, never heard of him, I want them to fall in love with Trey. I want them to fall in love with Ken, right? And in talking about it with Mia, Nina, and uh, with Stu, you know, from day one, I said, "My mission is to make everyone fall in love with you guys." So for me, right off the bat, I fell in love with them. <laughs> like you know, watching them on screen, like the number of times in the editing room, you know, watching these moments, saying there's Mina, there's Treya, you know, there's Stuart, there's Ken. It's showing up in the writing, it's showing up in the directing, it's showing up in the eyes and in the tears and in the smiles and in the light of these actors, you know. Um, you know, I also want to say that, um, you know, Stuart Davis, you know, Stuart and I have collaborated a number of times, have become very close friends, and his song Nicola, I think, will be the theme song. Mm, I love that song. And it, you know, from the first moment I heard it, uh, when Stu and I first became friends, I don't know how many years ago, decade ago at least, um, you know, I was just like, wow, this song is so gorgeous. The lyrics are beautiful. Yeah. And he has an acoustic version, which is raw. And it's like this rough diamond. And um, I want this film like to do for that song what... Uh, a number of other films have done for other songs because it's so fitting. It's so perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, may it be so. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, I connected, you know, I went to a screening of Night of Cups, I think it was. And I connected there with the guy, Francesco Lupica, a brilliant musician who has done a lot of the music for uh, uh, Terrence Malick's films. Uh, he did for Cups, for Tree of Life, uh, Thin Red Line. And he said, listen, I love the script. I, he trusted me and has given me a lot of his music that I've tempt <clears throat> currently in the film. It's beautiful. Uh, and, and then um, I, I'm not sure the Klugies, I connected with them and they're just beautiful musicians, a, a couple. And uh, they did uh, Martin Scorsese's Silence. And so I am tempting with some of their stuff. Uh, another brilliant musician. Um, so we'll see a lot of these things, depending on the distributor change, uh, but certainly Stu's song, uh, Nicola uh, is, is really in a, in a really pivotal scene that I think is a, is a beautiful tearjerker. Yeah. So what is yet to be done? And, um, and again, when, might, when would we expect to be able to see this? So if it, uh, you know, if we premiere, like, let's say TIFF or Sundance, the submissions start early on. That actually comes up in a couple months. And then these festivals like Tribeca or, or Berlin or TIFF or 
you know, we want to lock as soon as possible and then start submitting. And then we do color sound during that process. Right. And also, we'll also show to a small group of people prior to that um, to try to position it. So depending on where it's positioned, who it's positioned with, let's say it's with a company like Fox Searchlight or Netflix, let's just say, they may still want to, to premiere it at Sundance because that's right. local for it. Um, or they may say, hey, listen, let's get this out now. And so the, uh, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, okay, so it could be later this year, could be next year, uh, but... I think it'll be later this year in January, I would think, uh, Sundance at the latest. Yeah, okay. And have you shown it to Ken? Yeah. I, um, you know, uh, I'm going to come up to Colorado, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit in the room with Ken. Mm. You know... There was a, I don't know, there was a point so many years ago where I started reading Ken's work and and I thought, man, I'd give anything to meet this guy. So I've been reading all his books and I'm like madly in love. I never thought there was going to be another love affair for me with an author like that. Like there's authors that I've loved, right, Rumi? And no, that's, uh, it's, it's my story too, Sebastian. Right. I mean, I read Ken and was, uh, I was changed. You know, I mean, Ken introduced me to a better world, a richer world, a bigger world. I don't know how to thank somebody for that. But I was a student of his. I want to say a devotee, but, you know, it, it never got into that kind of a territory. Ken didn't want to and I didn't want to. But de facto, I have been a devotee and I have received his transmission in a way that is beyond precious. Simpatico, right? Yeah. So, and so for years I tried to want to meet him and then I just couldn't get in touch with him. It was like before kind of, you know, social streams of, of connectivity were around and I, I just, it was impossible and he was so reclusive and I was like, all right, it's selfish of me to want to meet him. Like his books and his mind have transformed me in such a profound way, you know, and, and it gave me such a paradigm shift. Um, so I wanted to meet, you know, Ken and then and it just couldn't happen. And then eventually you know, connected with you guys and, 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 uh, and then, um, you know, it was like, uh, you know, the little, the, the moment I stopped trying those channels like opened up. Yep. Like this sort of, sort of force kind of allowed itself to, to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, and if the theory is correct, we are ushering in a new stage of human development, a new stage of human history. And, you know, maybe so. And, uh, you know, one of the ways to do it is with teaching and philosophy. And the other way to do it is through stories and art. And, uh, you know, you're carrying that ball here, man. And uh, a lot of us are counting on you and hoping for, you know, a real beautiful uh, artifact, a real beautiful transmission here. I hope people uh, respond well to it. The beauty and the power of a movie is that it's immersive, that we get to put someone right in that space. Um, and that's beautiful. But one of the challenges uh, also that deducts some of that creative liberation that we project onto uh, a book that we don't get to project onto the screen. So I hope the audience will uh, have the, the space to allow that and understand that it's, um, you know, a, a challenging thing to adapt uh, a book. And the book and the movie are not, they're supplemental. You know, the movie is supplemental to the book. It is not meant to displace or replace or be in competition with in any way whatsoever. My hope is obviously that people will watch the film and say, um, 
this is a beautiful story about love, about eternal love, about what it is to be human and to care and to sacrifice, to care for another human being, to allow myself to be transformed by another's faith and love in, in, in me and for life. And that they'll then go out and get the book and they'll read the book and that they'll fall in love with Ken's work, they'll fall in love with Treya and they'll fall in love with her journey and that they'll be soothed maybe with their own journey, uh, whether it's about love, whether their journey is about illness, whether it's about mortality uh, and that then they'll fall in love also and it may open people up into Ken's work. That's ultimately, you know, my mission. And pe uh, people can look at the, uh, at the site, at graceandgrit.net. Um, and there's also, a, there are links to there, to the IMDb, to a Deadline Hollywood article. And then obviously people want to reach me. Instagram's a great way if they use that, which is Sebastian Siegel one. Uh, people can send me a message or something like that. Or uh, once in a while, I'll share a photo from set or something like that. All right. Well, hey, man, Sebastian Siegel, thank you so much for picking this up and running with it. I think it's a very significant uh, move in the you know progression of integral consciousness on the planet. And um, I, I'm grateful for it. Jeff, thank you so much for all you're doing and everyone there. Uh, I'm, I'm so honored and um, emboldened and, and refreshed and alive to be part of this sort of integral world and to have my finger in it and my fingerprint in it in some sort of way. And I'm a student forever. Uh, and I learn from so many people in the integral world all the time and always again and again from Ken's work. So thanks for the uh, warm talk. You bet, man. And uh, thanks again, Sebastian. And uh, thanks everybody for listening to The Daily Evolver. <laughs>